Well, lately, I've been in communication with some old high school friends. I am making plans to celebrate my 50th high school reunion next year, and I'm making plans to go. Holy cow! Can you believe that? It's crazy. I can't, I really can't believe it. And it obviously has brought back a lot of memories. One memory in particular, which is kind of an interesting memory, I don't know if they still do this, but on the last few days of school, we run around getting signatures in the yearbook. Do we still do that? Yes? Cool. Cool. And so, I mean, it is good, and I can't tell you how many times I've looked back in my yearbook at those signatures and some of the things that friends write. How about never? I have never gone back that I know of, to my knowledge, and looked at that. I mean, at the time, it seemed like something that I would treasure forever, right? I mean, it, it really is. Some of the pearls of wisdom that I do recall, I mean, and everybody had these written in their yearbooks, right? I mean, uh, it, it, have a great summer. Stay in touch. Profound stuff like that. It was great sitting next to you in whatever class you had with them, right? Often. But one that strikes me is the one where it says, never change. Don't ever change. What a great thing to say to a 17 or 18-year-old teen, isn't it? I mean, come on. Really? No, we, we, we're going to change. We're all going to change and When I go back to the reunion, I'm going to see how a lot of people have changed. Hairstyles have changed from the haves to the have-nots, right? And uh, lots of things have changed. And the reality is, is it's more than just physical, right? We want to change. I think we, many of us in this room, would acknowledge that as believers in Jesus Christ, we want to become more like Christ. But... You may be here this morning, and you would not say that you are a believer in Christ, but I would still bet you that you want to change. You want to get better in certain ways, whether it be managing your finances better, whether you want to be a better husband or wife, father, mother. We want to change. We, we want to get better. And it would seem that the appropriate question would be, how do we do that? How do we change? Give a nod if any of these, in some sense, say what you're thinking right now. How do we change? Through the power of the gospel, lives are changed, transformed. Through the work of the Holy Spirit that lives within those who know Christ. Being in fellowship with believers like you all that sit in this room. Accountability that comes with that. The word, the word of God. The renewing of our minds. Being transformed. And even this week, we've had a a week of prayer. I trust that you have met with God and that he has revealed some things to you spoken to you in ways that he desires you might change. All good answers. But this morning, 
Let me offer one other answer to that question. How do we change? We change as a result of rightly seeking forgiveness and by extending forgiveness to others. Our lives are changed. Their lives are changed. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. All of us stand in need of forgiveness because all of us sin. And you and I also have someone who needs our forgiveness. As believers, we've been forgiven by God and we have been reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that is due to God opening our eyes to the depth of our sinfulness and opening our eyes to his holiness. And that in that, we seek his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We are being changed, as it says, from one degree of glory to another. And this is a result of that forgiveness that he gives in eternal life. We are all called as a community to extend forgiveness to each other as well. The title of our sermon this morning is Forgiveness Sought and Forgiveness Found. If you happen to be visiting today, we have been going through the book of Genesis and over the last few weeks particularly, the life and story of Joseph. It is a marvelous story, I think we'd all agree. We have followed the life of Joseph and his brothers from the time that Joseph was 17 and is now almost 40. Joseph is now the governor of Egypt. That's where we are in Genesis. Second in command to Pharaoh. And some of us might ask the question, God, if you wanted Joseph to be second in command, did he have to go through all those pitfalls and turns and bumps in the road? Was that, was that all necessary? If that's where you ultimately wanted him, you could have led him around the dangers, right? You could have done that. Let's recap really quick. Starts with Joseph going out looking for his brothers. And a man, we don't know who this man was, was wandering, noticed him wandering and said, what's up? I'm looking for my brothers. Ah! The man tells him they're over in Dothan, right? His brothers, who he's looking for, hate him. Little brat, dad's favorite. They hate him, and they are looking to kill him. And so his brothers throw him in the pit. Oh, maybe not. Let's take him out of the pit. Let's sell him to the Midianites. The Midianites sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife makes accusations. He's thrown in prison. He shares some things with the cupbearer. Hey, ask the cupbearer to remember him when he gets out and he's with Pharaoh again. Cupbearer forgets. More prison. Cupbearer is with Pharaoh who has a dream that troubles him. Cupbearer just remembers then. There's this guy I met in prison. He He can figure out these things. He's amazing. He is amazing. Pharaoh calls for Joseph and shares his dream. 
Joseph explains that you're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and tells Pharaoh, it would be wise of you to find a man to manage all this for the land of Egypt. Pharaoh nods. You're right. I need to find somebody. How about you? Joseph, you're that man. Thanks. Take care of that for me. Finally, Joseph is where he needs to be, you might say. And we want to say no. No. He's been where he needs to be all along for God to prepare him for a time such as this. He has been following what God has laid out. Throughout all of this, God is sovereignly orchestrating all the details, and we will continue to see that. See, God is preserving. The point is, is God is preserving a people of his own choosing. The seed. He is preserving a people. The actions of his brothers, note this, prompted by their hatred and that crazy dream where they bow down to Joseph, their actions are unwittingly contributing to the very fulfillment of the dream that they hate their brother for. So, we're seeing again and again as chapter 50 of Genesis declares, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. It's clear. Can I say to you and me, though it's not always apparent and clear, God is at work in yours and my life in the same fashion. Lots of bumps in the road, lots of turns, lots of trials and suffering, but God is at work in our lives, shaping us through those things. We've arrived at chapters 44 and 45 of Genesis. Turn there, if you would. And this passage is the very climax of God's activities with Joseph and his brothers. All the back and forth, the comings and the goings, let's remind ourselves, where we are right here, let's remind ourselves that the brothers are still unaware that Joseph is their brother, that the governor... The governor is their brother. They still don't know that. To them, he's the governor. So listen as I read, and we enter the story at the conclusion of the brother's second visit. They have just had a night of feasting, right? That's just where we're coming from. They've had a night of feasting, and in some measure, through all of this, have come to a place of feeling pretty good about where they are with Joseph. Right? And yet still maybe a little puzzled by those five extra helpings for Benjamin? What's that? What is up with that? So let's look. Follow along with me. And if you would allow me, I'm going to omit a few verses just to move us along a bit this morning. I will let you know. Okay? 44, chapter 1. Then he, that is Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, with his money for the grain. 
And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So the steward, after discovering, let me skip to verse 14, after discovering the cup in Benjamin's sack, they were forced to return to the city, of course. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground again in fulfillment of the dream. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph, said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Now we're going to skip again. Joseph, in the next verses, just explains the difficulty of leaving Benjamin in light of what happened with Joseph, right? Who is dead, quote, and how he convinced his father to let Benjamin come with him. Moving to verse 32, okay? For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant, Judah speaking, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall bear, you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Go to verse 14. These two verses conclude our passage. Then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, we pray to you, the God who does not change. We pray that as we hear your word, that you would change us. Open our ears, open our minds to your amazing grace. Open our thoughts and our hearts to be responsive as you would desire us to respond. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing story, glorious, amazing story. We see here at the beginning of chapter 44 in the first 13 verses that this is the conclusion to their second visit. The bags are packed with food and once again, Joseph has instructed his steward to put their money back in their sacks as he did with the first visit, if you recall. But in addition he told the steward to put his silver cup into Benjamin's sack as well. Not long after departing, Joseph sends the steward after them, and the steward searches their sacks again, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, right? And discovers the money, along with, finally, 
in Benjamin's sack the silver cup. The steward says, why have you repaid evil for good? They are required to return to the governor's house. And when learning what has occurred, Joseph says in verse 15, what have you done? What have you done? Now, all this is Joseph's doing, right? They don't know that, of course. What have you done? Stealing the silver cup. The question that has, that question has far more to do, as you might realize, than the silver cup. The question, what have you done, occurs eight times in the book of Genesis. It's interesting. Seven times God's people get the question, what have you done? And seven times they do not respond well to the question. The eighth occurrence is different, however, and it's the eighth time in our passage today. I'm not going to look at all eight, but let me just point out a few just to jog your memory. First one, Genesis 3, Eve has eaten of the forbidden fruit and God says, what have you done? And Eve, of course, responds, the serpent deceived me and I ate, right? Blame shift. Adam does it shortly thereafter, the woman you gave me. Again, when we are confronted by sin, often we shift the blame. Someone did this to me, treated me bad. Look at the family that I grew up up in. What would you expect? The alcohol made me do it. We shift the blame to something or someone. The second time, Cain is angry because God has accepted Abel's offering and not his. And he kills Abel and God says, what have you done? You are cursed from the ground and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer. And Cain's response is, my punishment is too great. I cannot bear it. In other words, that's not fair. Maybe the first words that our children seem to learn and repeat rather regularly, that's not fair. And he complains. He complains about what the punishment has been. Last one I'll share with you is Isaac lying to Abimelech. In another one of those sister-wife stories like Abraham, Abimelech discovers that Rebekah is actually his wife and says, what have you done? One of our people could have easily lain with your wife and you could have brought guilt upon our people. And the next verse is interesting. Isaac goes and plants crops. No response? Silence. (laughs) No response at all. And sometimes we do the same thing. We ignore. We ignore the fact that someone has brought sin before us. So I kind of thought of the, the, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. (laughs) So we complain. We ignore it, 
and we move on. You get the idea. The other four occurrences follow suit. They do not respond well. But we can be guilty of responding in like manner, can't we? But Judah, on this occasion, does not dodge the question. He has dodged the question for 22 years, right? His response to what have you done is in stark contrast to all the other ones we see in Genesis. And his response is in verse 16. What can we say to my Lord? What words can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Let me say here, Judah is not pleading guilty to the stolen silver cup. It is much more than that. And he knows it. But rather to the sin of selling Joseph. Judah acknowledged this already. In chapter 42, verse 21, it says, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen to him. For that reason, this distress has happened to us. That has continued to follow Judah all along to this moment. He doesn't even ask any questions about the silver cup. It's not the silver cup. He is acknowledging his guilt before God in front of Joseph. God has found our guilt. Judah, the first step when confronted by sin, is to own our sin. Judah is owning his sin. Judah, can I say, is revealing that he is a changed man. Ian Duguid says, Judah recognizes that this circumstance was not the work of blind faith. Rather, it was the judgment of a personal God who had orchestrated these events to bring about justice. The brothers would all have to become slaves as the just penalty for their sin of selling Joseph into slavery. So Judah commits all 11 brothers to the governor's service as slaves. Joseph the governor, however, states that only Benjamin must remain here as his servant. The others can go to their father in peace. Leave only Benjamin. And Judah kind of gulps. I can't do that. I can't do that to my father. Seems appropriate to pause here and ask a question. Why is Joseph doing all of this. What is the point? What we see is Joseph's tactics are all driven by his desire to determine whether his brothers have changed. He wants to know if they have changed. Have they changed or are they still the same brothers that sold him into slavery 22 years ago due to jealousy and hatred? I think Joseph's tactics are brilliant in drawing out his brothers. Joseph, if you'll notice, is recreating the same situation that occurred 22 years ago. Joseph is recreating the situation in which they can betray once again 
the favorite son. Joseph says, no, leave him here with me. He's creating the same scenario. Leave Benjamin here with me. And they can go back, lie to their father again, and not care about their father's feelings at all. If they follow the path that's in some sense offered to them at this moment to leave Benjamin, they can go right along. And Joseph wants to see if that's what they will do. So, have they changed? We clearly see Judah's confession. God has found out our guilt. Anytime God reveals our sin to us, we understand that it's in his grace and in his mercy that he does that. That we might be made right with him. We see that happening here with Judah's life. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't make excuses. He owns the sin. We all sin and fall short every single day, and it's only by God's mercy that he reveals to us our guilt. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Judah's confession is more than just words. God has found out our guilt. It's more than just words. Judah is a changed man. He's not only owning his sin, he is also going to strive to make it right. To make it right. This making it right is evidence of what we see in Scripture of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. He's going to make it right. Look at Judah's response in verses 33 and 34. So now, please let your servant remain. Instead of leaving Benjamin. Let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. And let the boy go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear that I may see the evil that would overtake my father. Earlier, he said he would die. Judah is clearly a changed man. He offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. We have a clear picture of Christ in this situation. Judah offers himself as a substitute. I'll be your slave in order that Benjamin might live. Not only does he offer himself as a substitute, but Judah also, out of love for his father, says, do what you have to do to me, but let Benjamin live that my father might live. This is the first occurrence in Scripture where a man offers himself in exchange for another. Judah's willingness to suffer as a substitute for his brother foreshadows the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the lion of Judah. He is carrying on the seed through Judah. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary of Genesis, says, full forgiveness and reconciliation only become possible after Judah has demonstrated a sincere repentance in his words and in his willingness to take Benjamin's place. 
Judah sought forgiveness through owning his sin and making it right. And this leads us to forgiveness found. We see in the first few verses of chapter 45 that Joseph could not control himself any longer. He knows now that they have changed. And Joseph orders everyone out of the room and he wept aloud. Isn't it interesting to note that he ordered everyone out of the room and yet they could all hear him? The Egyptians and Pharaoh's household could still hear it. <laughs> the, the emotions are high. This is an emotional moment that is 22 years in the making. Joseph at last declares to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? And his brothers are terrified and could not speak. I think it's fair to say they didn't hear the question, is my father alive? When he said, I am Joseph, another translation, and it's translated many places as terrified. They were terrified. He could kill us. The position that he holds gives him that right. But Joseph, Joseph wants to quickly relieve them of any fear of retribution to follow on his part. And he says, come near to me, please. Come near. And they came near. Friends, Jesus invites those who acknowledge their sin to come, to come near. Hebrews 7, 25 states, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And Joseph does not want his brothers to fear or be distressed because of what they've done. He wants to forgive them. Listen as I read again verses 4 through 9. They are amazing. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh. To Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You can't miss it, can you? You sold me. God sent me. 
He repeats God sending him five times in this short paragraph. God did this. Notice clearly that Joseph does not negate the fact that they sold him. He does not relieve them of the responsibility, but he clarifies who ultimately is in charge. God sent me. God is in charge. God did this. We see here exactly what gives Joseph the ability to forgive his brothers. Joseph has embraced that God is sovereign. God is in control. God did this. Joseph's willingness to forgive is likely unequaled in all of the Old Testament. I think that's why for many of us, Joseph is our favorite character in all of the Old Testament. He reminds us of Jesus. Is it possible for you and I to be like Joseph? Is it possible for you and I to not shift the blame, make excuses, ignore our sin, not complain, or say that's not fair? Can we respond with a quiet confidence like Joseph and trust in a good and sovereign God? God is at work in and through us, and God is not reluctant to put us in situations of suffering that are done in order to bring about patience. He's not shy about putting us in situations that will ultimately bring about patience, endurance, perseverance, diligence, humility, gentleness, peace. We could go on and on. God is at work. It is clear that God is less concerned about our comfort and more concerned about conforming us to his image. Yes, often it's perplexing, it's not clear, we don't understand. But as we see here, we can be sure that his purposes are being accomplished in our lives as well, like they were in Joseph's. You and I can respond, and let's say it, at times, not always, but we can respond with a quiet confidence like Joseph and trust in God. It doesn't happen right away. I think it's fair to say that Joseph may not have responded this way when he was 18 years old, but he's now 40 and gone through a lot and has seen God's hand continue to work. He learned that God is in control. God would have us do the same no matter what things may look like. So I guess questions for us, is there a sin We need to confess. Is there someone that needs our forgiveness? Is there something that we need to make right with God? I want to close with a remarkable story of forgiveness. It's in Tim Keller's book on suffering. Georgiana is the mother of three daughters, and in 2011, their youngest daughter bumped her head on the floor in the house, and they took her to the hospital. X-rays revealed it was a skull fracture, but it seemed clear that there were no other complications. They returned home, and a week later, Georgiana was home with her daughters, and police detectives and child protective services arrived. They came to investigate a report of severe child abuse, which their new doctor had made based only on the X-rays 
nothing more. There was no evidence of abuse, but the family was torn apart for nine months. Georgiana and her husband, Ted, were not allowed to live with their daughters. So they had to move out and were only allowed supervised visitation. Georgiana says, I will never forget the first night away from our daughters. I was raging, crying out to God. She goes on, in the months that followed, there was unbearable emotional assault on our family, as well as a massive financial burden. This was due to the legal defense, of course, and mounting medical bills. In addition to that, Georgiana wasn't allowed to return to work because she worked with children. Finally, the trial came, and on the fourth day, the judge to the surprise of all, dismissed the entire case as unfounded. Georgiana says the most powerful facilitation to our recovery. Can you imagine this happening to you? The most powerful facilitation to our recovery has been forgiveness. She goes on to say, I think injustice is very difficult to forgive personally, it would have been impossible to forgive without God's intervention. The family repeatedly attempted to meet with the children's hospital that ignited the whole ordeal. The chief of staff finally agreed to arrange a meeting with the family, himself, and with the physician who had reported the situation. The family merely wanted to share their experience in the hopes that this never happened again to any other family. The chief of staff and the physician apologized in that meeting and said that they were so sorry. Georgiana says, when we were leaving the office, I hugged the doctor who had made the report. Later, she said, trust me, I did not feel like showing love to that person. But God did. And she says, that was the most powerful healing and reconciliation I've ever experienced. God changed me in that moment more than he had changed me throughout the entire tribulation. Just struck as she leaves the office and hugs the doctor who was responsible. Extending forgiveness. Our last two verses speak of Joseph with his brothers. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Forgiveness found. Forgiveness sought. Forgiveness found. Reconciliation between his brothers. Pray with me, won't you? This passage points us, points us clearly to Christ. The one who gave his life on our behalf. The one who took our place And instead of being a slave to sin, we have been set free.
for eternity through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Lord, we are amazed by your love for us. We're amazed by Joseph's expression of forgiveness and love that is a reflection of yours. Again, this whole passage just points us to you. We see you in every page. And so, Lord, I pray as we close that in light of having gone through the Lord's Prayer and asking that you would forgive our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Lord, that you would bring to mind, bring to mind those areas that you would ask us as we earlier observed the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper, and we're reminded of your sacrifice on our behalf, that you would help us to keep short account with you. And that as the story of Joseph and his brothers reflect, that you would make us aware of relationships that you would desire to restore. that would be supernatural, Lord, that would be your grace and your mercy in our lives and that we would pray for others, that you would do a supernatural work in each one of us. We have been called to do the same. So we pray, may you empower us and that we would respond for your glory and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.